This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. I get a call at 10 o'clock at night on my police phone. It's like the bat phone. And (laughs) I've just laid down. I'm emotionally and physically exhausted. And then the police headquarters calls me and says, chaplain, we need all of the chaplains to report. There were 26 police officers missing in action. We've identified Mm. all of their families and they're going to all be here at headquarters. So the sooner you get here, the better. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. What does it look like to trailblaze a new path for those who follow after us? Whether that's stepping into a career filled with first or simply opening a door for those who haven't had the same opportunities. Today, we're going to meet a woman who has not only accomplished some amazing things, but has held the door open for others to reach their dreams too. Ambassador Susan Johnson Cook, who goes by Ambassador Sujay, is a woman of firsts, so many firsts, that even though she hasn't been married to a president or a pastor, you could call her a first lady. She was the first African-American woman in her denomination to be elected to lead a congregation. She was also the first woman and the first African-American to hold the post of United States Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom. So, Ambassador Sujay, where are you from? I'm a native New Yorker with Southern roots. My parents were both Southerners, and they moved north as part of the Black migration in the 50s. And so I'm from New York City, but I'm a woman of the world. All right. All right. Well, let's dig a little bit into that. What states in the South did your parents come from? They're from North Carolina and from Virginia. My mother, North Carolinian, my father, Virginian. And they, you know, worked extremely hard. They didn't ever have it easy. Wow. So by day, my father was trolley car driver, which later became the MTA, motorman for the subway. Hmm. And my mother was a school teacher for 22 years in Harlem. And so both of them were civil servants by day. They were business owners. They built a business in our basement of our new home in the Bronx (laughs) by night. And so I was able to see what hard work, work ethics were like, what a community that pulled together, what a partnership of parents was like together, and that we could all do something. Even if we start with little, much can happen. Mm. And they both were people of faith. So my father was Baptist. My mother was Presbyterian. Even though we lived in the Bronx, all of black life at that time was really centered in Harlem. Mm. So we would, you know, go to church in Harlem. Mm. We would meet my mother after school in Harlem. So we had this wonderful, wonderful kind of grassroots 
experience, but at the same time, we were becoming upwardly mobile in terms of socioeconomics yeah. in the Bronx, which is an integrated community. So we really did see kind of what the world calls now diversity. We were the diversity trailblazers, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it was wonderful. So we would go south every summer which they would call going down south yep. um, up until I was in college and stay with my maternal grandmother. So we knew the cultures of New York yes. and we knew the culture of the South. And it was rich, you know, being on my mm. grandmother's porch. It was a very much an oral tradition. So we learned how to talk a lot. We didn't have <laughs> a lot of television. Most people had radios. But it was the beginning of the television era. So we talked to each other, you know, in the living mm. room. And we talked to family members. This was my first cousin, and this is your second cousin removed. <laughs> so, you know, we knew our family, and we knew that it does take a village. It took a village of people of common values and traditions to work together to raise this child. Wow. Tell us a little bit about what was the motivation behind these two Southerners choosing to move to New York City and putting that in the broader context of so many African-Americans who did the same thing. The Black migration of the 50s was also the beginning of the civil rights movement. And it also was very clear segregation, what they call Jim Crow segregation, where whites were on one side of the railroad tracks and blacks were on the other where you could not go across the tracks, literally and figuratively, mm. if you were poor and you were black and you had no business on the other side, and certainly after dark. And so they left sheer poverty and sheer segregation. And the mm. hope was that coming north, which a lot of people were doing, would be able to alleviate some of that, that there was sort of the the pot of gold on the end of the rainbow, the pot of gold on the <laughs> end of I-95, And so you came with hope and you came with vision and you came with partnership. And so I was raised around a lot of couples, a lot of strong black men, a lot of strong black women, and they were intergenerational. We would have parties. The kids were not told to sit in the room and say nothing. The kids were part of the conversation and they would ask us, Mm. you know, where are you going to college? I mean, I was five years old. I'm like, I'm just learning Dr. (laughs) Seuss. And they're like, okay, so where are you going to college? What are you thinking Mm. about? Our churches were very pivotal, Mm. same kind of conversation. And so what happened for us was in our churches, because everyone moved together, it was also socioeconomically where our education happened, where our social life happened. So the churches would have dinner dances. You know, my first dance was with my father Mm. or my uncles. Mm. And this is the way a lady is supposed to be treated, whether it's in this room and certainly when it's outside of this room. So it was like, woo! Yeah, I I love that because that also means that you knew you had so many different images of just men in your life and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you knew that people had your back so that's really cool mm-hmm. yeah talk to us a little bit about what harlem was like in the midst of the civil rights era because i mean there's so many incredible people and things everyone from adam clayton powell to malcolm x and all these things that were like literally walking the same streets you were at the time and yeah just kind of give us a picture of what harlem was like for you growing up in that era Okay, it was the word excitement and energy. 
it was ecstatic, you know, because we walked the streets, particularly in Harlem, we walked the streets with Adam Clayton Powell and the first black judges were in our churches and the first black lawyers. So every success was celebrated. So there was this healthy respect, but we were cheering everyone on. So it was the celebration um, of all the ancestors who went before us who didn't have a chance to stand on the steps of the Capitol, but they built the steps, you know? So it was the compilation of we're celebrating for those who could not be here, but wish they could have seen it. And so for me, my first meeting of Martin Luther King, I was in third grade and he was at Hunter College in New York City. And back then, you know, our parents, like I said, took us everywhere. And so I remember leaning over and shaking Dr. King's hand and Mrs. King's hand. And my parents had brought the Negro encyclopedias. It was a volume of encyclopedias that were sold by a black pastor, Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, who was a lieutenant for Martin Luther King. Yes. And then in our library, we had books all by Dr. King. So I remember opening them when I learned how to read. And I remember reading, Where Do You Go From Here? And as much as I could comprehend as a third grader, I had read a good piece of it. So when I shook his hand and shook her hand, I knew I was in the midst of greatness. And in the back of the book was the address of Dr. King. I, in my third grade penmanship, penned a letter to that address thanking Dr. King and Mrs. King for coming to New York. Mrs. Coretta Scott King hand wrote me a note saying, thank you, I received your letter. Fast forward, I become best friends with her eldest daughter, Yolanda, when we're in college. Mrs. King comes to my living room. I bake sweet potato pies for her and my mother. And then when my mother dies, she becomes my godmother. She says, I'm your other mother now. So you're talking about this 40-year span of me first admiring this woman um, and then having her personal relationship with the wife, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King that wow. I had written to as a third grader. So it just, it's mind-blowing. It's amazing. But it shows you how life does go full circle. And I'm going to get to that, but I'm still mesmerized by the fact that you were reading <laughs> Where Do We Go From Here in third grade? Like that, you mentioned that your mom was an educator, a, a teacher. Mm-hmm. So like, how did that impact the value of education and and the relationship between education and civil rights and justice. My mother was the matriarch, not only of our family, but of our community. So people Mm. enjoyed coming to our home. Yes. And they knew they were coming to an educator's home. She was a fantastic Southern cook. So we would have three and four meats, the fried chicken, the roast beef, Mm. the spare Mm. ribs, four or five sides, the macaroni and cheese, the collard greens, the black eye. So this was every Sunday. If you came in, grab a plate, you know, and they would stay at my mother's house for hours. I would have to say, don't you guys have to go to work tomorrow? I mean, people just loved, again, being at my mother's home. So around our dinner table, if I made a grammatical mistake, like she wouldn't let me say where you're from. So she would say, excuse me. Um, that's why so where are you from? So we had spelling bees. We had vocabulary, you know, uh, so 
Tell me another sentence that starts with this word, whatever the word was for that day or for that week. Is it a verb or an adjective? So we were constantly learning. Mm. There was excellence expected. But the other piece is to go back to her beginning. The only way out of the fields as a sharecropper's kid for a black woman in her era was to be an educator or a nurse. Those were the only two professions um, that really got you kind of out of the fields. And so she learned how to become a teacher. She made her way up to Fayetteville State Teachers College. So she worked for the president because she knew how to type by day. And she would take her classes by night seasonally. And she'd go back to the fields until she taught every one of her cousins who was in the fields in a one-room schoolhouse and until all of them got out of the fields and got that good government job, whether that was the post office. But whatever it was, it was not manual labor any longer. It was not working for someone on your knees or cleaning their home. Um, And so it really was a mindset change. It was a generational shift. And then she's like, okay, now that we have shifted the generation, then everyone's going to get educated. And so you may not be able to graduate from college, but you certainly will graduate from high school. Mm. And really, she was the first generation to go away to school, but there's several since then. And certainly the next generation, all the kids went to college. So she was a trendsetter without knowing it was a trendsetter. Mm. And man, it sounds like you had to really be on your game academically at home if you didn't want to get drilled. And so what what result did that have in your own academic uh, achievement in high school? Oh, man. Like, C's were not an option, you know? (laughs) So I could come and say, well, the whole class got a C on this. And she was like, I don't care about the whole class, you know? So we were in gifted classes. We were always in accelerated learning. And then in seventh grade, they found the money. Like, private school was like $9,000 a year. And my Mm. parents were only making $9,000 a year at that time. But they found a way to get me in. I don't know if I had scholarship or not, but I knew they sacrificed at least 50% of their salary. And Mm. first of all, when I got to 10th grade, we were on college-level work. The kids who studied Spanish went to Spain. The kids who studied French went to France. So Mm. I go to Spain learn how to negotiate and navigate the globe. And I knew when I got on the stage of Spain, I said, I know I'm a world leader. I didn't know how to figure that out at 14, but I knew there was something bigger than being on the corner of Yankee Stadium in the Bronx for me. Mm. So when I came back, a lot of my playmates' families were moving from Puerto Rico, and they were first-generation Puerto Ricanos. And so their parents, many of them, did not speak English yet. And so Mm. I am now a 14-year-old girl who's bilingual, black girl, playing with their children, and I'm interpreting... And, and teaching them what the idioms are and telling them how they navigate the Bronx, New York and places mm. they need to go and sitting at their table and eating beans and rice. And so without knowing it, I'm having this cultural mm. education. Um, so in my building, which was a high rise on the Grand Concourse in New York, overlooking Yankee Stadium, there were 24 stories on both sides of the building, 17 apartments on each floor. Wow. On my floor, there were wow. 11 different ethnicities. Every time a new family moved in the building, we had a party, you know, especially <laughs> if they were an ethnic minority. But we were all in this safe <laughs> space. It was like our bubble. You know, (laughs) and we were in the same building. But again, we grew up with this healthy respect and appreciation Mm. for other cultures. So it wasn't like you're the West Indian and you're the Bosnian. It was like 
you're my friend. Yeah. And so it was a very healthy upbringing in the most diverse city in the world. Okay, that sounds amazing. So you graduate from high school with this already international experience. Where, where do you go next? My mother specifically wanted me to have the historically black college experience because I had had the other extreme of, of this rich, white, elite school. And so I went to Fisk University as a freshman in Nashville, Tennessee. I was very young. I was 16. Amazing. I was far away from home. So it was a lot of pressure for a 16-year-old. And even though I could hang academically, I came back to school in Boston. So I finished in Boston at Emerson College. I was a communications major. We all went to this church in Boston called St. Paul AME Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was the first time I saw professional black Americans, brilliant black Americans, um, Afrocentric black Americans and Christians all in one place mm. where we did not have to apologize for either of those being Afrocentric, mm. being black, being brilliant. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in reading your bio and learning a little bit more about you, I was really fascinated to switch from you working in TV, having this communications background. Mm-hmm. to ministry. Like, tell me a little bit about that, like about what was going in your mind in terms of your aspirations in the communications and how did that shift to a calling in ministry? So I would say two things. I would say a calling is ongoing. Sure. So I knew at 13 that I was called to ministry. Mm. A teenager doesn't know how to articulate that necessarily because I'm still doing all the healthy things that teenagers do. But the church was very important to me. I met my first black female minister. Her name was Katie Cannon. So she was a college student who came to our living room. Mm -hmm. You know how there's a family that you hook up with when you're in school to get your good meal and all of that. And I knew when I saw her that in my spirit, it leaped like this is whom I'm going to be. This is a role model that's safe of a woman doing God's work. So for me, it wasn't like cut and dry, like I'm in communications and tomorrow I'm in ministry. It was it was happening all along. And mm, I was actually I trying to go to seminary while doing television until the call got me to a point where God is saying, which one are you going to do right now? Mm. Not God. that I wasn't called to do communications, but it's like, what choice are you going to make? And the Lord said, what you're going to do? Not where you're from, but what you're going to do, <laughs> you know? Right. And I said, yes, Lord. Mm. I said, I will follow. And I went mm. to seminary full time from that point. And a year to the date that I said, yes, I was licensed to ministry. So it was like the Lord was waiting for my yes. And so my aspirations were to go to Hollywood because <laughs> I was a theater communications major. My aspirations were to go to Hollywood and have a love scene with Giselle. Those are my aspirations. <laughs> But the Lord gave me another stage and I've never looked back. But it was almost like the Lord needed to know he had my heart first and all other things shall be added unto you. That's so good. And, and, you know, you made a little bit of history at Mariner's Temple Baptist Church. So tell us a little bit about that and that moment. Yes. So my home church, which is Union Baptist Church in the village of Harlem. So I'm in my last semester of of seminary. And so I preached for them as a pulpit supply. The pastor had gone on vacation. So they needed somebody. Mm. You know, any opportunity to preach when you're a student is awesome. So I go to this church. It can hold like 1,100, but there are 15 people in there, Mm. senior citizens. And so I preach, you know... uh, excited for the opportunity, come back. The next week, the pastor sends in a resignation letter, but they say, 
That young girl just preached for us. So we need an interim. Let's call her. Let's see if she can come. And it grew from the 15 seniors to 150 people in the first six months. And so they were like, well, we like who we have. We've interviewed (laughs) some other people, but why are we going to get someone else, you know? And so the denomination said, well, you know, it's the rule. Like, you're really not supposed to call the interim. They said, okay, but we want her. And so they called me as their first um, African-American in the American Baptist churches to be elected to a congregation in the 200-year history. We don't know you're making history when it's happening. Mm-hmm. So here you have the first daughter of Union Baptist Church, the first woman to ever be licensed, going into this first church where a woman's ever ordained. So tell us a little bit about that. So I knew that if you met people where they were, as they were getting on and off the subway, and you said, look, I, I've got something. Can you just stop by my church? It's going to be convenient. It's going to be lunchtime. If I went in the projects that were at the corner and I knocked on the door and said, I'm your new pastor in town. I know you haven't gone to church, but would you just come come see what I'm doing on Sunday? Or you can come on Wednesday. And what people said, I remember this line. This guy said, if you took the time to come to my house, then I certainly can take the time to come to your church. You know? Wow. Wow. People started coming and then they brought their families and then they brought their families. And I looked around my context and saw who was to my right, who was to my left, who was in front of me. And I was like, this is what's going to work for us. And it gave my senior citizens a ministry who were literally sitting around doing nothing every day. They were like, well, we can go shop for some bologna. We can go shop and fry the chicken. So they would fry the chicken Wednesday morning. Then change into a white shirt and a black skirt. They would buy the paper bags, bag it. So all the person had to do was grab the sandwich on the way out the door. And people were like, this is the best. And they would only get one piece. (laughs) But they were like, this is the best chicken leg I ever had. You know? So it met many needs. Wow. And so this amazing thing happened. So down the street was police headquarters where all the police work and all the police brass work. And so the police headquarters brass people would take their lunch hour. The mayor's office people would take their lunch hour and all the city agencies. And then they would start bringing their bosses. They were like, you got to come to the services on Wednesday. And so we would have whole offices mm-hmm. say, we're shut down on Wednesday at 12 o'clock. Wow. So the vision and the key is that you have to be close enough that people can use their lunch hour and not be late to go back to work. Because if you have a working class population, the Mm. one thing you can't afford to do is have them lose their jobs. And you can start seeing people fidget because they're they're on the clock and they're city workers. So we had to respect this. So the police brass go back to the commissioner and they say, we have this Wednesday pastor. I want you to make her chaplain. I didn't know there were chaplains for the New York City Police Department. I had never heard of it. They went to Commissioner Ben Ward. And Commissioner Ben Ward calls me in. He said, you want the job? And I'm like, oh, my (laughs) gosh. I was like, yes, sir. So it takes a year to vet you by the time they go through all of your background checks and all that. that. So I think it's about being faithful to your calling, dedicated to the place where you're called to serve. So even though it may look like the glass is half empty, you have to have a vision to see it half full. 
and to not get discouraged by small numbers because powerful things happen with two or three. Mm. So I think the word is to blossom where you are, bloom where you're planted. That is fascinating on a lot of different fronts. Um, Just seeing you were paying attention, you know, seeing where people were burdened, being this intersection of commerce, of politics, of policing, and just business and spiritual need. But I want to kind of circle back to the location of Mariner Temple, uh, because especially there was a moment that all of America remembers um, the world, September 11th, that Mm -hmm. you found yourself in a unique position. What do you remember about that? Take us back to that and let us know how that unfolded in in the unique role that you had in it. Yes, I was on the front lines of 9-11 because I was the NYPD chaplain. The day was a Tuesday. It was a beautiful Tuesday. We were supposed to have our Wednesday service the next day, but it was right down the block from the World Trade Center. We literally would have people from the World Trade Center come to our lunchtime hour service. So this morning, it was eight o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful, sunny, uh, it was a voting day. It was an election day. We were voting for local elections, borough presidents. So again, I live in this high rise. So I bring the car around for my mother who's about 80 years old at this point, to take her to the polls because we all voted in the neighborhood. And I come in the driveway and the doorman, you know, who knows me, he's seen me grow up, says, you know, a plane just hit the uh, World Trade Center. And so being from New York, there are so many activities a day, so many accidents a day. I'm like, okay, I'm saying to myself, I'll hear about it on the six o'clock news. We're thinking it's a little propeller, you know, that took a wrong turn. You don't even think about it twice. So I go take my mother to vote, come back, to bring her home and then I'm going across the Triborough Bridge for those who are not from New York it connects Bronx, Brooklyn and Queens I believe so I get to the head of the bridge where the toll booths were and the police are like frantically flagging people over like you can't cross this bridge and so I have my police ID and my car is a, a police emergency car so we have a siren and I said, what's going on? They're saying, another plane just hit the, you know. I said, well, I need to get to the other side of the bridge. They said, well, go. So I get right past the toll booth and I see the other World Trade Center. It's like billowing black smoke. Mm-hmm. So we still haven't really listened to the radio because I'm not thinking there's a tragedy. Now seeing the police, I'm like, oh my gosh. I get to the other side of the bridge. So then I go to my building where my mother is and I see her trembling and I have to go in daughter mode first, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so mama, you okay? So making sure she's stable and she's okay. Then I go into mommy mode. My kids are at school. Mm. They're in grade school. Mm. And then I hear that no buses, no trains are running. So I know on my floor in my building, there are two cops And so I know they have children. So I knock on their mother's door and I say, you know, I'm going to pick my kids up. Do you want to ride with me so we can stop and get your grandkids? And they're like, please. So I become now like a shuttler. Wow. I want to make sure my kids are fine and that they see me Mm. and that the other parents and grandparents, their children are fine. So I rush to my kids' school and I pick my children up, pick these other parents. And as we are driving back and forth, between Manhattan and the Bronx and picking other people up that I know, we see hundreds of people walking from downtown. Mm. They are now covered with soot. I didn't know what it was at that point, but they're covered with this gray matter because they have walked from where the World Trade Center is all the way up to Manhattan. So for people who don't know, we're talking 11 miles. 
um, because no buses are running, no subways are running, everything's shut down. And so either you could walk or you're stranded. So now it's like this very surreal movie of people covered in gray, crying, trying to get somewhere, me trying to keep my family and other children calm and being as much of a help mm. as I can be. And you're initiating. Yeah, I'm just going off adrenaline now. I'm initiating wow. this. I know where people live who are either firefighters or police officers. And I know mm. by this time what their situation is. Mm. So in between picking up people's kids, I had to go to my church because they don't know whether we're having revival or not. Mm. So I have to stop by my church. And for about a half an hour, the church fills up. People needed safe space. They needed to cry. They were hysterical. And people who had walked from downtown who were members of my church were sitting there in the soot. And it was Mm. the first moment that everybody could exhale together. And so I had to pastor this people in peril and say, it's going to be all right. Like, you know, I didn't know really what was going on, but I knew it was going to be all right. And so they were able to go home with some sense of calm. And just kind of be in a holding pattern. But at least they had their faith leader tell them it's yeah. going to be all right. I get a call at 10 o'clock at night on my police phone. It's like the bat phone. And <laughs> right. I've just laid down. I'm emotionally and physically exhausted. And then the police headquarters calls me and says, chaplain, we need all of the chaplains to report. There were 26 police officers missing in action. We've identified Mm. all of their families, and they're going to all be here at headquarters. So the sooner you get here, the better. We get to police headquarters. Of course, they're now like, you know, fortresses. Like, Mm. show us who you are. You can't go inside. But by this point, it's down like five blocks from World Trade Center. So in the air, it looks like it's snowing, but it's gray. Mm. And this is the same soot that I saw on people who have walked uptown, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know what it was. And by the time I come outside of the police headquarters to go down to what they call ground zero, my car is now covered with like two inches of soot because this is what's coming from the sky. We're driving through soot. So we get downtown and fires are still burning. The buildings are bent Mm. over like a King Kong movie, like King Kong literally brought these buildings down. And I'm saying to myself, I know Mm. there were people in there. Oh, my God. You see now that this is really serious. It's surreal. Mm. There are people's lives that we're trampling through. Mm. And by this point, the fire department and the police department have been digging for people, trying to rescue their firefighter brothers and sisters. Um, They had not found any of the police who were missing in action. And so they needed a word of prayer. So many of the fire department are Italian and Irish, and they're Catholic. But I saw for a moment, in a moment of hysteria, they were like, Chaplain, will you pray with me? It didn't matter whether you're black, white, female, male, Catholic, Baptist. So New York City becomes my parish. You know, it's not just this congregation that I minister to on Wednesdays and Sundays. Now I have to help a people come together. And so then I'm getting calls from the 911 operators who nobody thought about But they had been on the phone with people as they were jumping out of buildings. It wasn't post-traumatic stress. They were traumatically stressed in the moment. Now, there had been a rule in in New York City, separation of church and state, that you can't have prayer in city buildings. But laws are broken. Rules go out the window when you're talking about human life. Mm. 
And they said, Chaplain, can you get over to the 911 operators? They're calling for you. And Mm. for the next 60 days, I wasn't just New York City Police Chaplain. I wasn't just pastor of Bronx Christian Fellowship. I wasn't just pastor of New York City. It really became kind of the world was watching with how do we handle this? Yeah. And I realized I had not been trained in post-traumatic stress operations. So there was about the 60th day that I literally just fell apart emotionally. I pulled to the side of the road. There was no one for me to go to because we were the leaders in this thing. And I just cried and got it out. And I just kind of said the next day, like, you know, your chaplains need some mental health time, you know, and took what time I needed. And then you're back in the operation. But, you know, it's still, as I talk about it, it's um, you're raw inside. Yeah, yeah. You're raw inside. When we come back, Ambassador Sujay will share about what it looks like to step forward in courage. Have you ever had to order a president around and tell them where to go? Ambassador Sujay will tell us about that experience and more from serving in two presidential administrations and organizing the funeral for the iconic activist Coretta Scott King. That's coming up on Where You're From. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Ambassador Susan Johnson-Cook, I wanted to share with you a teaser from our next episode with Rich Perez. This is Where You From. We have fire escapes and stoops, and when it's summertime and it's hot outside and people don't want to be cooped up in their apartment, they'll make the front of the building their living room. And you'll see people posted up on milk crates, and beach chairs. You'll literally see, smell a little bit of everything up here. Minorities in particular, immigrants in general, have had to create a life with whatever's been given to them. And when I see people sitting on their stoop of a building or hanging out in their fire escape, you would have probably hung out on your marquesina, which is your front porch in Dominican Republic, but you don't have that right now. And you have to make do. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Ambassador Sujay, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. We've also included the link for our Daily Bread's free special edition download, Remembering 9-11, Facing Tragedy and Finding Hope. The e-booklet includes personal stories of how God worked through this tragedy and gave people hope when they needed it most. And he will do the same for you. No matter how deep your hurt or intense your struggle, 
we can all find peace, hope, and unity in Jesus. This download is available in the podcast description with the show notes. In the first half of our show, Ambassador Suje shared her experience of being a pastor in New York City during and after 9-11. From a young age, she knew that God was calling her to more than one thing. But as her life continued, she learned more about where God was leading her and why. Little did she know, she would soon end up working in two different presidential administrations and representing the United States around the world as an ambassador. Here's Ambassador Sujay as she explains her experiences as a diplomat to help people experience religious freedom. You're listening to Where You're From. My ministry is at the intersection of faith, politics, women, family, and business. So all of those are part of my life. People think that you have to dissect it and just be in this one lane. Well, some people get one assignment and they they live their life in that lane. I've always had a highway, you know? Out of my experience, I know how to do business. Out of my experience, I know how to lead other faith leaders because I am one. Out of my experience, I know how to lead women who are busy servant leaders because I am one. I know how to help people with families because I am part of one. And so I think for us, you know, we we should not segment our lives unless God says, right now, this is the only assignment I'm giving you. But when you are multifaceted and multi-gifted, then I think you should operate within the gifts that you're assigned and that you're called. One of my favorite scriptures is the prophet Tess, Deborah, who in Judges 4, they tell you very clearly, she's the first female prophet or prophetess. She's a judge and she's the wife of Lapidot. It's already telling us she's in three lanes and she was able to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, which means she had fame. A a palm tree was named after her. And it says she sat between two holy cities. Instead of running over here to Ramah to judge and over here to Bethel, it says she sat there and the people came to her. And I think what you have to do is when you are multifaceted and multi-gifted, you have to find a way to manage it. You have to manage your fame. You have to manage your family. You have to manage your fun, your life balance time. And you have to manage your gifting. So this season may not be my season to be X, but because of my life, experience, I can pour it all into here. Yes. So fast forward, I was a White House fellow and anyone listening who's between the ages of 25 and 35, whatever your profession is, if you've had some life experience and you have, then you document that in a resume. And the White House Fellowship Program is very competitive. It was created by Lyndon Johnson 60 some years ago when he was president. But you apply, you are vetted, you go through all of these exercises. But if you are selected, you work for the president, the vice president, or one of the cabinet secretaries. So you are assigned and you're paid at the executive level of government. You're not an intern, you are a fellow working in government at the highest level. I applied at 21, and back then the director of the program wrote a typewritten response to me. You know, really kind of nice, but basically come back in a few years. You know, like you haven't lived long enough yet. So Mm. I reapply under President Bush. George H.W. H.W. And it's a Republican administration. And I got to the second round, and the second round was a reception. 
And so I'm into this real artsy kind of thing. And I know how to dress and I know what you're supposed to wear. So, but I wore the wrong thing. I wore this purple suede, beautiful dress with this little scarf over my shoulder. My hair was in braids. And this is now in the 70s, you know. Mm. And when I walked in the room, everybody has a navy blue suit. <laughs> the men have a red tie and a white shirt. The women have a white camisole and a little pin. And I walked in the room and I said to myself, what in the world were you thinking? Not where you from, but what you're doing. And I kind of knew it. And so the whole night I'm trying to pick this scarf up that's falling as I'm talking to people. They clearly wrote me a letter. You did not make the next round. <laughs> and I knew it. I just knew it. So my third time applying was President Clinton was in office. It was his second half of his administration. And I knew that I had had enough life experience. I had been police chaplain. The dots were connecting. And the spirit said, this is your time to apply. Mm. Fast forward, I get selected. But you have to have five references. So who are my references? The police commissioner of the city of New York the mayor of the city of New York, the United States senator from New York. So all of these people who I had worked for, worked with in my past, now I'm in relationship with. So when the White House Fellows Office opens up, even if my application is not great, they're going to see Senator Charles Schumer. Mayor David Dinkins, commissioner, and they're going to see those names. So they're going to at least read the second page. <laughs> I mean, yes. You know? I, that, okay, that has to be one of the all-time biggest flexes in reference <laughs> history, right? The the senator of New York, the mayor of New York, and the police commissioner of the city. And a, That's congress- and a congressman from Brooklyn. Oh, you know, and a congressman, so, yeah. And to the point again, it's the relationships across two and three decades. It doesn't happen overnight, wow. but it's staying in good stead so that when you get to the point where you need a reference letter, they know you by name. Like, they're not faking, like, I may know her, but they know you by name and experience. So all of that happens. So let me just fast forward. So I go to the White House Fellowship Office. They've never had a Baptist pastor in their history. You know, they've had people from the military. They've had educators. So they're kind of like, what are we going to do with this black Baptist pastor? Like, where are we going to place her now that she's here? And so they they had me go to seven interviews when I get to Washington. And they're like, well, you know, if nobody wants you, basically you can work in the office of personnel. And I'm like, I didn't go through all of that to just work in the personnel office. But the Lord had it so that I went around to all the secretaries. And every single one of them talked about faith. Like I thought Mm. I needed to know about healthcare reform and NAFTA, Mm. all the issues of the day. And so I memorized everything from Time Magazine and Newsweek. (laughs) And as soon as I sat down, they were like, you're the woman preacher, right? You know, I've read some of your books. And so I'm being interviewed about my faith. Um, Mm. I get to Office of Management and Budget. They're like, well, we have this Wednesday night Bible study. We hope that you'll come sometimes and not just attend, but you lead us sometimes. Secret service would knock on my door. They were like, I said, what did I do wrong? Because I'm always, you know, messing up. I'm always messing up in the political world. They said, no, we wanted to just talk to you. We, you know, we hear you're the pastor. Would you mind like spending a few Mm. moments with us? So those kinds of things, God showed up. When we say God walks with us, God is already in the room that we enter. Mm. And so President Clinton says, like, look, 
You know, I like going to black churches. And so I need you to help me write some speeches. I need you to help me with the protocol. Am I saying the right thing when I greet them? So I end up being a speech writer for the president of the United States. I mean, oh who, who thinks that's going to happen? And so then it just kept mushrooming from there. But again, it's about being faithful to where you're called, being faithful to the call, and honoring God with whatever looks like a small thing, honoring mm. God and doing well with what he's placed in your hands to do, and yeah. God will do the rest. Yeah, I keep seeing that theme play out, you know. Right. And so right. I want to kind of turn the corner because there's another opportunity, which it's just wild to me. I'm just laughing how you ended up, you know, serving in the Obama administration um, and as an ambassador at large, where we get Ambassador uh, Suja from. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to kind of go back into that kind of aspect of public life. A few things. You know, I'm always asking God where I can best serve. And mm. I'm reading Bruce Wilkinson's book, You Were Born for This. And the question is always, God, what would you have me to do? Or what would you want done with my life today and my ministry? So I'm constantly asking that. And I think seasonally, you know, you ask that question. Like I said, some people get like one assignment and it's a lifelong assignment. I've been blessed to get lots of them. And yeah. so so I ask that constant question. And then having the wonderful relationship with President Clinton, who took me on and kept me on for seven years and so as a result of that relationship, um, when his wife became senator in New York of my home state and when she became a presidential candidate, those relationships were not severed. In fact, they were strengthened. So you're now still friends with those in the political world. So when she becomes secretary of state, you know, they know my faith. They know my political experience. And her question was, do you have any international experience? And I was like, yeah, you know, it started at 14, living in Spain. <laughs> so I start listing all these countries. And it turns out it's like 27 countries that I had been in, actually mm. spent some time. So she's like, you know, we have this position that looks like it's kind of on paper made for you. So long story short, I get nominated by Secretary Clinton. I get appointed by President Obama. And my portfolio has 199 countries in it. Got it. And that, that's so good. And I, and I think, you know, in your capacity, you know, kind of serving in this role, uh, focusing on religious freedom, what were some things that you saw that it's different in other places or uh, caused you to realize that there needed to be a light that is shown on the aspect of religious freedom around the world? Great question. So the Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom is the chief advisor to the Secretary of State and the President of the United States on religious freedom issues abroad. So all countries who are part of the UN sign this declaration. It's called the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And basically within human rights, there is a clause that you will allow your citizens to worship as they please, you know, choose the attire of their choice that matches their faith, and all of those things that give you religious freedom. Well, even though many countries sign on to that, not every country exercises that. So my role was to go to the countries and basically report to the secretary and president on the countries where it's not happening, where they're not honoring the agreement, where they are actually stifling or persecuting egregious acts against their citizens because of their religious beliefs. So in a sense, we were going into religious war zones, places where it was not working. Uh, we weren't going to the countries where everything was, you know, really 
peachy creamy because there was no need to call attention. So we had this list that America came up with, which is called countries of particular concern. And it's basically a shameless. It's really the countries who are not even trying to do anything about it. And so I talked government to government, you know, so I was at the diplomatic table and basically my presence was to say, look, You don't really want to be on this list. Really, you want your citizens to live whole lives. And so even if you can't change overnight, maybe there's some things we can help you to do step by step. It may just be opening up a school for Christians and allowing them to have a place where they can openly do that. It may mean if a Christian pastor comes into your country, not imprisoning him or her, allowing them to have their church services with other Christians. So my job was to actually try to push the needle a little so that every country would honor that UN Declaration um, of Human Rights and the International Covenant for Human Rights. And so, uh, you know, we left some in better condition and we left some that really weren't ready to change. Did you see any success stories that encouraged you in that season to go, wow, you know, this actually can make a difference in this diplomatic way, you know, in an area in which people can have very strong beliefs and convictions about. The thing about religious freedom internationally is that most of the work, it was not headline work. You couldn't say, okay, we got a prisoner free today (laughs) because um, it meant then whoever surrounded that person or how they got out of prison could really kill their family. Or sometimes we had to have the whole family flee and then we can say, you know, we got this prisoner out of Iran or whatever. That's why they call it diplomacy. I can't come out and say to the press, (laughs) you know what we did today? We Mm. got a prisoner free and he's now, and he and his family are in this country. You really had to protect. And so a lot of it felt like, um, you know, like I was working for the FBI a lot. You know, you (laughs) you were like, can I say this? And so everything was very scripted And again, you had to honor what your assignment was. It was not my role to say to the public, this is what happened. It was Mm. the secretary of state or the president, depending on the diplomatic trip that I took, to say, America would like to make this statement about X, Y, and Z. So I would say there were some pluses, some Mm. real success stories. But I would say every one that was a success story was difficult in getting them free. Uh, was difficult in getting their family protected. And so you have to really use discretion. It's diplomacy with discretion. And yeah. um, you have to be honorable to that. Wow. Well, that's so such an important work. You know, my heart does go out because I know that around the world, people don't have the same level of freedom to even just publicly celebrate holidays and things like that. Right. that or wear a cross you know. or wear right. a cross. I mean, you literally in some places can't do that publicly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we're really blessed yeah. in this country. So, uh, you know, there's so many different ways. I'm, I'm going to get you out of here on this. We haven't even talked about your work as an author. Mm-hmm. How many books have you written? I have 14 and the 15th is at the press with our daily bread. So I'm going to okay. ask people to look for rhythms of rest but, you know, I, I write a lot on women's empowerment, women's life balance, women's self-care and what I call soul care, mm. particularly for Christian women. But, you know, I believe that that's part of my calling, not to just be the first, but to be the <laughs> first of many 
And so mm-hmm. I'm really excited about God entrusting me or trusting me enough to be a trailblazer. And if you are, then to not cry about it, just walk the trail, blaze mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah. and keep it so that the next generation doesn't have to come through the same trail and blaze it, but they can take it even farther then you were able to take it. And I think that that's what is. So one of my fathers in ministry said, remember the ones who went before you, honor the ones who walk with you and make room for those who shall follow you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making space and room as a trailblazer for those of us who can uh, really be inspired by all that you've done, uh, which has been quite considerable and a lot. And and one thing I, I wanted to ask, just kind of from that full circle, in a lot of ways, you talk about how you were inspired in writing this letter as a third grader to uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, and then her ending up being a godmother to you later in your life. And then you had the opportunity to officiate and pray at her funeral, a funeral that 10,000 people attended. Tell me a little bit about what that meant to you to go from that space of being in third grade and writing this letter, Mm. you know, to this person that you just were inspired by, to then, you know, having that moment to be a part of, you know, her home going. Wow. Well, you know, I went down to Atlanta to be with my best friend, Yolanda, her firstborn. You know, Mm -hmm. I went to be her sister, supporter, friend, as they had been with me when my mother died. Both she and Mrs. King came, you know, as soon as they Mm -hmm. heard. And so I went to be with my best friend, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I ended up there, there were so many worlds all coming together that the phone literally never stopped ringing. So I found myself having to delegate to people. You will handle ministers. You will handle this. And everybody come in. We will have a meeting in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night with the family and we'll put all these worlds together. And then I found like out of all the worlds, I knew people in all the worlds. I knew members of the Congress. I knew the preachers. I knew the entertainers. And so the family finally kind of said, can you, can you pull this all together? Mm. And it's like, it's my honor, of course, mm. because they should be grievers. They shouldn't have mm. to be planning their mother's home going. And so really just pulling all the people together, making sure those who have big egos who were in the room, it was like, this is not about you. Mm-hmm. No, this is Mrs. King's funeral and her children are the priority. And they they get the first and the last word on everything we're doing. And then coming into the service that day, again, really just to be there as the support. When I come in, four presidents of the United States are there. President Bush and his wife, President Clinton and his wife. I can't remember who the other two were, but it was Jimmy the Carter, or, the, yeah. Jimmy Carter and his wife. And there was another right. f- fourth one. So they're standing in this room in like what's a green room, but nobody's there with them because you know, so many things are going on and the four presidents, two of them knew me. So president Clinton literally, he's like, I'm glad to see you. And mm. so then president Bush jumps up. And he says, and I'm glad to see you too. So president Clinton goes, well, I gave her a job first. And so president Bush says, well, I like her now. And so they're, I'm like, look, guys, <laughs> look, Mr. President, this is how we're going to line up. This is where you'll stand. So they're like, so are you going to, I said, I'm going to get you exactly to the place you're going to stand. And so having done funerals and having done dignitary mm. funerals, I'm like lining everybody up. I'm like the family, the children are first presidents. You follow then, you know, da, 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 bishops and clergy. You're, I know in your congregations, you at the front of the line, <laughs> but today you're not. 
So mm-hmm. if you don't have a seat inside, this is where you are in the procession. And so kind of just like everybody's taking direction. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so like, so then I get to the pulpit and literally I'm supposed to do the opening prayer. Well, Bishop Eddie Long leans back and Bernice King, his, uh, the daughter, say, we need you to help us get through this. So Bishop Long says, I'm going to start and every other one you going to do. And we're going to do this together. So now I'm officiating the funeral. So standing in the pulpit and really being able to moderate it was just like the book I'm reading. You were born for this. Like for Mm. this moment, all of those experiences where people say you're all over the place. You're doing this. You're doing that. Well, God knew that I was all over the place, you Mm. know, and he brought it together in all of this one moment. And so it was an honor. Mm. to be with them, to be there for them, to be able to hold up my best friend, who's the godmother of my children, um, who we laughed with, who we cried together, and then to embrace her brothers and sister and say, I'm here for you. And Mm. so to be pastor, to be friend, to be daughter, beloved, to be moderator, officiant, to be former White House fellow, and in this moment, see all of these worlds converge. I said, God, I was born for this. Ambassador Sujay reminds us to hold the door open for those who follow in our footsteps and to follow where God calls us by saying yes to his plans of shaping us into who he wants us to become. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And if you'd like more information about Ambassador Sujay, check out the show notes. The show notes also contain a link to Ambassador Sujay's new book, Rhythms of Rest, 40 Devotions for Women on the Move, and links to connect with us on our socials via Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. So check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout out to Joyce and RJ for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Where you're from is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.